0: Get out of the house. It's <laughs> well, just got, like that. It's so tricky. We've got three <laughs> kids in the bathroom bigger yeah. than you.
1: You know, literally, there's there's no eye more exacting <laughs> than one sibling looking for an overhang by another sibling into their airspace. So,
0: exactly. Right.
1: Hey, welcome. We're back in the studio, this time with the one and only... Mr. Tony Preedy, which has taken us, I mean, years to get into the studio. So massive thanks for joining us. But why don't I learn the lesson? Because last time, Georgia told me off for my absolute rubbish introductions. So let's try to do this properly. I'm Ian Jindal, Editor-in-Chief of Internet Retailing. Welcome. And you are? Thank you for having me,
2: Ian. I'm Tony Preedy. I'm Managing Director of Frugo.com, and we're a global marketplace business. Lovely. And? I'm
0: Georgia. I am Head of Marketing for Adobe for the UK and Middle East.
1: Wonderful. Now, no one else is going to realise why that was hard, be- <laughs> but just trust me, we've made it. There. So, <laughs> with that fantastic uh, start. So, Tony, we get to Frugo in a second, but we can't do that before we talk a bit about your career and how you ended up at Frugo. My Sort of guilty secret is I think you taught me everything I know about e-commerce 20 years ago. No, really. Not true. Wow. And we used to have I've the never Friday heard you be so down. humble. Well, it's just fake you. <laughs> no, no. No, in this case, it's actually true. So Tony, who's always known everything everything, just tell us about your retail resume.
2: So I started work at a company called Great Universal Stores in the early 90s, so predates the internet and Google and all those things, <laughs> and learnt sort of direct marketing from experts that had been doing it for an awful long time. And then as digital came along at the end of the 90s and the beginning of this century, became responsible for marketing services, so predictive analytics, campaign management software, uh, data warehousing, and all the analytics and reporting that goes with those things. And got into customer value management and the economics of businesses and how to extract value from them and so on. So I spent quite a long time in large home shopping businesses. Mm. And that's when how, I first that's... met you,
1: you were sort of jack of all trades and master of most. Because <laughs> I think um, at the time I joined, you'd just been through, I think, the competition commission work. Uh, I was stunned at the fact you knew everything about every part of this enormous business. So you had covered quite a lot analytically as well. So you're bringing those bits together. Well,
2: I was the junior member of the team that was responsible for representing the two businesses that the Barclay brothers uh, had bought. So they'd bought Littlewoods a few years earlier, and then they'd acquired the GUS business from uh, Gus PLC and were approaching the Competition Commission for permission to retain the two businesses. And so mm-hmm. That was a very great opportunity to to sort of learn management consultancy and uh, and a lot of what the sort of the very expensive lawyers and accountants do day to day. So, yeah. but it, it did give you a great grounding in all of the the aspects of both businesses because we were representing them in argumentative form to to the people mm. who ultimately agreed that the businesses could be combined.
1: Great. Well, now we know what the expensive lawyers do, which is give it to the person that actually reads the stuff (laughs) and lets them crack on it. So there we were, Littlewoods-ing away, Shop Direct. I lasted not very long and haven't had a job since, but you carried on. So let's pick up the story there. So uh, I was a brand
2: director for a few years, running a business unit, then left as part of the merger of the Littlewoods and Shop Direct businesses. They sort of made myself redundant through that process, went to work for Europe's largest home shopping business, the Otto Group, as marketing director for the UK, uh, better known in this country for Freeman's and Grattan's PLC, but also the parcel delivery company Hermes, or as it is, it is now, That's, mm-hmm. that was part of the same group, and uh, lasted just over two years there. Largely... You sound
1: like um, Survivor. Well, it was a case of...
2: Um, <laughs> A turnaround where radical surgery was required and the shareholders weren't quite ready to to sort of swallow the medicine, basically. Mm-hmm. And after a while, if you're on a board and you're basically paid to give opinion and you figured out what's going on and they don't want to listen, then there's not a lot of point staying around. So I, mm-hmm. I exited and I went to work for... Lakeland, the kitchenware company. Which just a kit. No, you're underselling it. The kitchenware company.
0: Was a destination.
2: (laughs) It's a fabulous business. uh, And I'd been a customer of it for many years. So it was a delight to go and work there. I was was marketing director there for 10 years. So I got to do creative stuff with catalogues and websites, as well as some of the data stuff as well.
1: Um, And you sold. People on those lovely silicon bread-making funny things that I bought. Still use it? Three times a week? Honestly. What?
0: You were there for the best ten years. (laughs) (laughs) My mother's favourite place, Lakeland. Yeah. The coffee destination, I would say, of that time period.
1: Is she (laughs) (laughs) left-handed? No. No, but... Basically left handed anything as well.
0: Could. My dad is left handed. That's why I'm laughing. There we are. I understand. Yeah. Left-handed <laughs> teaspoons. <Yeah>. Absolutely. <laughs> it's what everyone <laughs> ever needs.
2: So I left Lakeland for, for a number of reasons, but one of them was recognizing that making money in multi channel retail is really difficult. Mm. Um
1: pause because we have a lot of people telling us it is, a lot of people telling us it's not. So what makes it difficult? Surely it's no more difficult than making money from retail. I think the challenge
2: with e commerce, if you think about how it's grown for most multi channel businesses over the years, is that it's become uh, a whole bunch of incremental costs. And generally speaking, hasn't generated sufficient incremental revenue to cover those costs. So essentially, you've spread Mm. the sales you were going to do anyway over Mm. a larger cost base. So that's a problem in the first. And then, second, there is a slow, gradual erosion of traffic from physical stores to digital. And so you've got the same problem with the stores, which is you've got all the costs, in fact, rising costs of rent and rates and energy and so forth and staff and fewer people buying through the stores. And then you end up having to figure out, well, actually, is this just a brilliant advertisement for my website? And actually, if I close the store, Mm -hmm. do I actually lose online sales? And so you spend an awful lot of time trying to figure out the economics of multi-channel retail. But in essence, I think physical retail is becoming a a challenging place to make money.
1: But the benefit of physical retail is that once you have repaid your fixed costs, the marginal profit on each incremental sale is relatively high. Whereas with e-com, as you grow and grow, you still can't dump the order level costs. So it's inherently... At scale, less profitable. And therefore, we spend a lot of time trying to have channel strategies. Whereas in reality, as you know, George's response, my response to Lakeland show is I don't think of myself as a Lakeland shop customer. I've only ever been to two of them. Mm. Uh, I don't think of myself as a Lakeland web customer. I see myself as Lakeland. You know, yeah. it, it lightened our lives. So the brand doesn't give a toss about channels, it ought not to.
2: And I think still a lot of businesses think about their P&Ls in channel terms mm-hmm. rather than in customer terms. I think that's a mistake. But ultimately, you're right. You have to look at it holistically. But the costs are specific. So you have a store. It is a cost. You have to make a decision as to whether or not you think you can justify the continuing expense of that store. And in some cases, you can and in some cases, you can't Hmm. and you're right about the sort of the difference between sort of fixed and variable costs in the terms of the two different channels but black friday is called black friday one of the reasons it's called black friday is because it takes that part that long through the year for most retailers to make money and so yes they are making money in that store that if you will that fixed cost repayment occurs but it's usually with six weeks of the year to go and it can be quite dicey if that goes wrong
1: (laughs) yes Well, that's a cheery thought. So you did Lakeland, full of love, sheep outside your office window. Um, The air is so pure that it hurts the lungs. And then you think, oh, I know. I'm going to travel down to that there, Manchester, and join a thing called Frugo. And I can remember when you joined, uh, I was somewhere between teasing and incredulous because I didn't really get the business model. So just tell us about Frugo because you filled your house with... Fits um, you stolen from Lakeland. So you, left-handed you physically, goods. you can't have any more left handed jars. It was one in
2: one out in our house. <laughs> so I was banned from buying anything else. Something had to go each time it arrived. Yeah. So I
1: thought, what I need is to go to a place with a trillion products <laughs> because life isn't complicated enough. So goodbye, Lakeland. Hello, Frugo. Just mm. talk to us a little bit more about why you made the move and what Frugo has become.
2: Well, let me start with what Frugo was, was. Where the it, bit i didn't understand where it came from so uh, it was originally founded in helsinki it was a finnish business and i think that's important because as i've got to know the business you get to know a little bit about the finnish culture which is quite isolated uh, nobody speaks finnish i mean nobody speaks <laughs> finnish hey you're uh, talking to uh, a ap- welshman apart <laughs> w- <laughs> apart from finn so the the founding idea for frugo was that Cross-border e-commerce should be as simple as domestic e-commerce. So you sh- so language and currency shouldn't matter. And sat in Finland, that's quite an attractive idea. Mm-hmm. And the investors that sort of were sold in on that idea were, were quite wealthy people. A guy called Risto Selasma was the principal shareholder. He had made his money selling his software business, his, his uh, F-Secure sort of um, business, uh, and was at the time uh, very senior in Nokia. So Frugo was not connected to Nokia apart from through him. But nevertheless, uh, he and the fellow shareholders bought the vision and funded the development of this bespoke platform designed to make cross-border e-commerce frictionless to the tune of about 35 million euros over about five years.
1: Wow, I and, wish I'd known them. And,
2: and what <laughs> and what they did was build an absolutely spectacularly good set of processes and applications very well architected to do to, to solve that problem at scale what they failed to do was uh, monetize or rather to, to solve the, the the retailer acquisition and, and the cold start problem that all marketplaces mm-hmm. have and due to the fact that Nokia was really struggling and and needed a lot of Risto's attention the iPhone had just come along and was really starting to sort of eat their lunch. He sold the business, and he sold the business to, to UK shareholders who had been involved in it prior to that, and who had a UK business. They merged the two together, and so Frugo continued, but based in the UK instead of in the in Finland.
1: But so, still with that lovely name, which you're going to tell me means something.
2: Yes, so surely it means something in Finnish. Uh, it is selected so well. The, so the real truth—I'm not sure I'm supposed to put this on the public record—but the real truth is that Google Shopping was originally called Frugal.
1: Oh. And, was it?
2: And uh, the original name was Frugal, and so they picked Frugo because they thought it sounded quite similar.
0: I mean, that's smart. I just never knew.
1: And any lawyers listening, that is just an urban inspired by, inspired, inspired by, by yeah, but,
2: cannot be confirmed. But the uh, Frugo also is. I mean, it is a meaningless word. It's a made-up word, mm. and it is therefore not present in any language, and therefore it's trademarkable. Right.
1: Right. Uh, so so, um, so they
2: so the business was acquired. the technology was sort of sat there, if you will, nascent taking virtually no transactions but capable of so much more right and what the uk shareholders did was then sort of fans the embers between 2013 when it was acquired and uh, and the next five years just to sort of keep the thing alive and grow it and grow it and grow it and it it grew pretty well from a very very small start to the point when i joined in 2018 when it was really had, if you will, proven its uniseconomics. the business model did function, the technology did function, and what they needed was help with scaling it up. And the chairman at the time was a guy called Michael Hancocks, who we both know, (laughs) who I'd worked with before. And he came along and said, got this amazing business. It would really suit your skill set and they need some help designing and executing a growth strategy, will you come and have a look
1: Right. five years? Well, When Mike says that, you're ne- there's always an implied threat in that, isn't there? So, no. As no he, it's, this is a big challenge. Well, he's a smart guy.
2: <laughs> so, so I think it did get my attention, let's put it that way.
1: Now, before we get into it, I want to pick up on a very lovely phrase you mentioned for Marketplace, which is cold start. So don't let me forget that, but we sort of skipped over just saying what Frugo does. So tell us how what the proposition was when you arrived in 2018 to the observer on the Clapham omnibus, and in particular, just draw us back into what this cross-border problem is that this lovely technology sold. So what was Frugo? What was the solution?
2: Frugo today is what Frugo was in 2018. It's just a bigger version of it. And the problem that it solves is that if you're sat in one country with some inventory and a website, and therefore your product data in a single language and currency, figuring out how to sell it to other people in other countries is quite hard. You have to worry about translation, you have to worry about currency and currency movements, you have to get your payment systems to accept strange payment methods that you're unfamiliar with. And you've got to figure out the marketing of that other country. So if you're sat in Finland and you're making satchels from Elks, maybe, uh, then the likelihood that you're going to be able to figure out how to market those products to customers in Portugal is about zero. So you've got a decent business and you're selling to your local customer, but you've got no mechanism to internationalize. And I think the old growth model for retail was If you wanted to sell something, you opened a shop, and people came to your shop and you sold them things. And if you wanted to sell more things, you opened another shop, and then Mm -hmm. you opened another shop. And that's how you grew. You basically expanded your footprint. And our thesis is that if you want to grow nowadays on the internet, you have to do the same thing. But that means you have to get your product in front of more shoppers. And what Frugo provides is the ability to put your product in front of billions of potential shoppers.
1: Right, but... On the basis that other markets that are famous are available, Mm -hmm. and because we believe all the marketing we read, I therefore believe it's very easy for me to open my shop in France, Germany, or something from the UK. There are lots of promises made about upload some CSV files, and then you'll be trading in another country. So what is it that, that doesn't work with that more publicized model that you're solving? So,
2: Amazon provides an excellent service. And I would never say to a retailer, don't use Amazon. I would say use Amazon and use Frugo.
1: Right. Okay. So secondly, why?
2: Secondly, oh. well, let's just think about how nowadays for a British retailer, assuming this this conversation is primarily targeting a, a, a UK based audience. We have a very large UK
0: audience that listen <laughs> avidly every week.
1: So, Post-Brexit,
2: you now can't synchronize your Amazon stock from the UK to Europe. You have to basically export it from the UK, import it into the EU, put it in an Amazon warehouse, go through all the the paperwork and the logistics of that. And then you can sell to European customers on Amazon. They'll ask you to translate your... Content. So you have to figure out that. And they'll ask you to uh, price your product in the local currency. So you have to figure that out. So you can do that. And and Mm. I would encourage people to do that because it will help discover that actually internationalization is a viable way of growing their business. But Amazon's only going to do that for you in a certain number of countries. We'll do it for you in 40 countries. Mm. We'll do the translation for you. We'll do the repricing for you. So you'll give me your products in British pounds and I will always pay you in British pounds. I will always pay you what you told me you wanted to be paid for it. So I won't monkey about with the pricing. Oh. Um, and uh, we will take care of the payment side of it. So uh, we handle the foreign exchange risk, we handle mm. the fraud risk, we handle the payment methods that you will be unfamiliar with. So for example, in, I never knew this, in Portugal, one of the popular ways to buy online is to buy online and then go to a cash machine and deposit the cash into the cash machine, type in a code, and that's how you pay for your goods. What, not take money out of the cash nope. machine, put but put money in. put money in. In. into
0: the cash you machine.
2: You put money in. Wow. And that synchronises, and that is how you complete your transaction. So our payment systems have to sit there going, has she gone to the cash machine yet? Has she oh, my gone? God. Wow. So, so there's lots of those. There's okay. lots and lots and lots of those all over the country, all over the world. So... As, but as a retailer, you don't have to worry about any of those things. All you do is give me your product data in English and British pounds. Let me worry about translating it into Portuguese, pricing it in euros, dealing with the weird cash machines.
1: Mm.
0: We
2: take the order, we send it to you, you ship the goods.
0: So you are de risking the end to end process
2: of internationalization. Correct. It's internationalization as a service. Yeah. And we're
0: leveraging. Oh. <gasps> New oh. buzzword alert. We need a, yes.
1: a sound I-A-S. effect. I-A-S. We've had a few. Oh, God, we, we do we need
0: a sound effect. We need a sound effect. Right. Write so that down.
1: International service. Yeah. yeah. But uh, also, the thing within that is there doesn't seem to be a lower limit. So with the lovely marketplace we mentioned earlier, I have to have a minimum level of commitment to consign stock and so on. Whereas it sounds like well, yeah, and you have to let
2: your stock go to that other place. And, right. and the 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 beauty of Frugo is that you're leveraging the inventory that's already in your warehouse to service your domestic business,
1: mm.
2: and you don't have to pay anything in advance. So if you don't get any orders from us, you don't pay us anything. So therefore, our goals are aligned. We only win when you win, and so you're leveraging your existing stock and your existing data. You've already got that product data in English and Mm. you've got your pricing anyway, so you're simply able to take data and inventory you've already got and generate sales that you would not otherwise have got. Because my contention would be, sat here in the UK, your sales in Portugal today are probably zero. Yes, they are. and, and, and (laughs) And so we can solve that for you.
1: But this goes back, I think, to the cold start problem. So marketplaces are plagued by liquidity and friction. So liquidity of sellers and product, liquidity of customers and demand, and the friction of matching both of those together. So I love what you said, but this just sounds like a really hard problem that I wouldn't want to have to solve. So I can see the attraction to sellers. I'll look at your website, suck it up, do all the work for you, job done. All you need to have is a stamp machine to stick it in the post. How do you get anybody to come to you? Because you don't wake up in the morning and think, I'm just going to go and do a bit of going. So the uh,
2: this is another sort of, I'm not sure I should say this type thing.
1: Please do, it's just us listening.
2: <laughs> I'm assuming your um, audience is what you said it was. Yes, <laughs> it just the people All you All three hate? of them, yes. <laughs> um, if they don't
1: work for me, they're not listening.
2: Then we're not really a marketplace. Oh. Uh, what we are is a very good marketing machine. And so what we're doing is we're taking your product data and pumping it out into various different digital media, and using that to attract low funnel shoppers. So people that are looking to buy the item that you're selling, that are actively in the market for that item, we're very good at nipping in front of them and showing them Mm. an advert that says, hey, we've got one of these, would you like to have a look? We're serving about 1800 adverts per second. Night
1: and day, now, that is around a the world,
0: sizable amount. Is it? Yes.
1: Right. I have no idea. Was... Per
0: second, just per second.
1: Just, we deal with big numbers all the time. It's a big number. It's a oh, big right. number.
0: It's a
2: lot of. It's a lot of adverts, and yeah. so we we are individualized on, though for individual products somewhere wow. in so in forty different markets. So, I currently have on our website around about one hundred and forty million SKUs. Yeah. And those 140 million SKUs are then retranslated and repriced into 40 markets. So, in total, there are billions of these virtualized, mm. localized products for which we are then serving advertising. And the advertising algorithms are brilliant at detecting when it is profitable to show an advert to that customer at that moment. Yeah. Because if they click it, I pay for that click. And I only earn if they customer yeah. checks out and buys. And that's the commission I then charge to the retailer.
0: Now, that is, a, as we just said, a very, very big number. So from a marketing perspective, I'm interested in, I'm presuming you have a lot of similar products. Mm-hmm. So if I'm a seller and I'm selling a product, how are you marketing multiple of um, the same
1: or, or functionally or fun- equivalent, or, yeah.
0: or functional equivalent, let's say, mm. yeah. At the same time, and how are you not? I mean, I speak as out of interest as a marketer, not cannibalizing your your audience. Do, is there a kind of a strategy behind that? If I'm sp- looking at Frugo and going, I think I'm I'm really interested, but you've already got a hundred of my,
1: yeah, or a million of
2: my, a million things, of right. my bottle, for example. I can't go into the sort of the secret source, if you will, oh, the, oh, the, no. the, the, oh. the secret source recipe. But I can answer your question, which I think is to say. If you're a retailer considering joining the platform, what do you need to care about? I think that's the essence of yeah. your question. And it wasn't,
1: actually. That's how you're turning it. She was, I mean, she she was it, asking you the secret it, source. I wanted the
0: secret sauce <laughs> so I could go back to Adobe and look extra smart. <laughs> but I will accept your very clever marketing answer on...
2: Well, my answer is I will, I will, I will lean towards the question, uh, the original question, <laughs> because I think the truth of the, uh, to, the it doesn't really matter if there are a hundred people selling the same item ultimately, or they're at least the same functional use, mm. if you can win the sale. And so the question is, what causes your product to show over the over yeah, others? okay, got it. And there's some obvious, if you will, hygiene factors. So price and availability matter, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, obviously. But then it goes back to copywriting, and that takes me all the way back to my sort of original direct marketing Mm. days, you know, and the books that were written in the 60s and 70s and 80s about direct marketing. And and even there's a guy called Claude Hopkins who was famous for writing direct marketing adverts in the 1920s. He basically wrote the book on uh, off-the-page advertising and on direct marketing. And that stuff really, really matters today, 100 years later, because if you can write good copy for your products, and nowadays we'll worry about the keyword relevance of the things that a customer might type into a search engine that will cause them to yeah. find or want to see your product, then you'll get your edge. So so I would argue probably the most underutilized lever the retailers have got
1: is copywriting.
0: As a ex ad mm. agency girl, I endorse this answer.
1: Well, thank you. Well, yeah, we take your endorsement. Yeah, <laughs> thank
0: you. Very but much. no, I mean, it is one of those things that isn't spoken about that often. And I think, especially mm. when you think about how we're automating a lot of the digital ad serving yeah. and you know, especially copywriting and the art of copywriting.
1: So before we go back to that and ask the obvious ChatGPT question, which uh, I will leave hanging, uh, I just want to finish off on this cold start liquidity thing. So again, if I just play it back, and I think this is we some years ago, is this sounds like a search arbitrage model where you're dealing with billions of items for a very slim margin with relatively high risk uh, or, or high sensitivity to the accuracy of your bid engine, mm-hmm. which sounds like a disaster to me. I mean, you know, I'm not a gambling man, but that just sounds really hard. So just just tell me how you're managing that aspect have I mischaracterized it? and then move on to how you're building liquidity in terms of reach to consumers and onboarding people to the platform?
2: Well, I would only challenge the characterization of it as a disaster because clearly it clearly works, it's not, it clearly yes. works pretty well. <laughs> and the answer is that you manage using algorithms that are targeting ROAS. So somebody else has said to me this week, isn't it a nightmare CPCs are rising? So I'm having to spend more and more on CPCs. And the answer is, well, you only have to if you're prepared to allow your ROAS to drop or you're not managing ROAS otherwise. And
1: ROAS is not an indigenous shrub to the Lincoln, <laughs> is it?
2: So, so ROAS, return on advertising spend. Thank you. Just so checking. therefore you manage your return on advertising spend and if you focus on that, you care less about what the click costs you and more about the return you're generating on whatever that cost was. Mm-hmm. And there are b- several things you can do to influence that, not least conversion rate optimization, to allow you to make higher price clicks viable and obviously it is a function of the cost of the item you're selling so if you're selling a 20 pound item you can probably only afford a certain click cost for any given conversion rate whereas if it's a 200 pound item then you can afford to pay more and so on but the out what the algorithms are doing is it's essentially saying with this content and that product and this ROAS, i can only afford to pay x and i either show or i don't show Mm -hmm. and that's why copywriting matters because if you lock all the other parts of that equation say what else is changing then relevancy is the thing you can really leverage and so effectively the way to deal with rising cpcs is to have better quality
1: content fine now i come to the platform i give you my stuff you go translate translate i never get a sale because my copywriting is rubbish so you've done a good translation it's just I was rubbish, I don't care, I hadn't read the book. How, if at all, would you help me? Do I get a report saying reasons for rubbishness this month were too expensive, uh, crap content, or is it basically I just never hear from you like my Amazon affiliate account?
2: You have an account manager with Frugo. So we pride ourselves on having, being personally accessible, We've only got a relatively small number of merchants currently on the platform, a few thousand. And so you can contact somebody and we'll give you the generic advice or a version of the generic advice I've already given you, which is look at your pricing, look at your copywriting, look at your images, look at which countries you're listening to ship to because if, if you want more sales, make sure you've got shipping configured for all of the 40 countries that, that mm-hmm. figure can get you to. And after that, it is going to be a question of, do people want to buy the thing you've got? And to a certain extent, we'll give you evidence from Google Trends about the search volumes that appear to be relevant to the products that it is that you're selling. So if you're selling, I don't know, some particularly obscure item, then the demand for that product is probably quite low. But if we can also help you understand if actually what's happening is you're selling a highly popular item, but you just happen to have mispriced it.
1: Yes, or even mislabeled it or something yeah yeah so the question then is now that i'm totally convinced about the wonder of it all is why why doesn't every retailer use you and you just become the sort of universal sort of babel fish for all products in the world well, Is it just they haven't listened to the podcast yet? or the, Well, that's marketing? why I'm here, so to, to, <laughs> to
2: proselytize the, the, the Frugo story. Um, I think sometimes people believe that they want to own the sales channel. So they want to have their own website in each country. And they want to sort of see it as an extension of the mm. brand. And they don't particularly want to see their products in a generic platform like frugo or or, or a department
1: or, store or, or, or any other <laughs> or the sort internet. of
2: internet yeah or any other sort of directory. non-owned asset yeah. yeah so so i think that's that's potentially one reason and i think most mar- i mean having worked in you know as a as a digital marketer as a as a marketing director in one of these businesses you, there's a lot of competition for your attention vendors are always trying to sell you things mm. there's always more work to do there's always a constraint around the technology in your business and so you have to make choices and to a certain extent Businesses are worrying about op- channel optimization, this, that, and the other. I haven't necessarily selected internationalization as a growth factor, mm. But I think this is the other, uh, to cut back to another sort of reason why I think Frugo is an interesting business, I, as well as that proposition that says you grow by getting your products in front of more people, my other contention is that shopping nowadays is search, not browse. So whereas sort of 10 or 20 years ago, if you wanted to buy something, your, your, your consideration set was who sells such and such, I'll go, I'll go look at what they've mm. got yes. and browse their range. Mm-hmm. You don't do that anymore. You type it into your phone yeah. and you type it into a search engine and you look at the results that come back and you follow the, the, the breadcrumb trail mm. and you end up buying something.
1: But the, I think what we're seeing alongside that is that the idea comes from somewhere. So in the geographical past... You'd have a mental map of your high street or near where you worked or the Mm -hmm. way to school. And that formed, if you like, your universe of possible things to desire or need. And so now we're seeing more activity on, say, social media where you're browsing your stream or looking at your friend's stuff. And they think, I never know. I never knew I needed this thing that I've just seen. And that then takes you to search. So there still is, I think, this idea of someone somewhere is influencing you to buy things that you don't necessarily need but maybe want frequently (laughs) frequently (laughs) i
2: think e-commerce has always struggled with this inspire paradigm you know so catalogs god bless them they have you know spent 20 odd years making catalogs coming our way through um were great at showing people things that they didn't even know they wanted Mm. and that's a lot harder in a digital world that's right um now tiktok's great at showing you things that probably don't work but you might want
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> hence my kickstarter addiction <laughs> however
2: i i don't think this is what there's a single answer to this question you know a lot of your shopping is want based and some of it is need based mm-hmm. and some of it is relatively i don't really care i just need to solve it i need a doormat i don't really care about doormats mm-hmm. but i just need a doormat and so you'll that's the sort of product you'll search for mm-hmm. and if you think about what amazon sells is very very good at yeah, selling low based. emotional quotient products and it's never cracked fashion yeah. you know even after all this time and all this effort it's never cracked certain categories so a lot of uh, and I guess that's probably partly correlated to this search browse dimension which is mm. if you sort of need it but don't particularly care too much about it you're you're probably more inclined yeah. to search for it and then you're in the world of search engines and then you're in the world of marketplaces
1: yeah. And, you know, we see the marketplaces are kind of taking over the world. They are. So uh, there are about 400 we track uh, in Europe. You included of course. But, you know, there's one, I will not say my favourite one, but it sells little lead-painted soldiers from the Napoleonic era. And the passion, sorry, Napoleonic era soldiers, not from there, uh... The passion of the buyers and sellers, very knowledgeable, you know, it's a bit like a club. So loads and loads of marketplaces, 57% of web traffic across Europe goes to marketplaces, mm-hmm. 57%. And what well, they're looking for brands, things, whatever, and then the retailers are getting around 20%, and the brands are getting around 20%. But given that the reason you go to retailers is for the brands and the marketplace is often for the brands or the products, it does mean that in terms of customer time on site, the retailers are getting squashed to be, for like, the operational cartilage between your brands and the products. So, you know, we, we just see the marketplaces are, are growing in every country, led initially by France, but the UK now is, uh, you know, as committed to marketplace time.
2: Well, Frugo is exciting as a place to work because it's at the center of three enduring and game-changing trends. W- one is the movement of retail from physical to digital, and there's still vast amounts of, mm-hmm. of shopping to still to move, mm. e- even this far into the e-commerce journey. Secondly, the one you've just been describing, which is the transition in e-commerce towards marketplaces. And then thirdly, the uh, trend for e-commerce marketplaces to be cross-border. And so in Europe, it's, it's very common to trade across national boundaries, but it's also becoming now common to shop across global boundaries. Yeah. So you're at, you're at the heart of one of my other
0: favorite buzz buzzwords which is a, a lovely Venn diagram. You are at <laughs> the epicenter of the ultimate commerce Venn diagram. I guess. Yeah, well at least there's three things that oh, are irresistible if, <laughs> if you insist. So if you are, uh, which we've just stated at the the epicenter of this wonderful Venn diagram, where to next because I think picking up on what you were just saying, I think browsing is where I think marketplaces in general have not solved, because it is, it's is—it's almost, because of the volume, nigh on impossible to actually peruse mm. a marketplace. Is that something you're going to look to solve? Is that one of the things you're going to kick off, or are you going to push even harder into needs-based and kind of more timing and price methodology? Where, where to?
2: Well, about 80... 80- but eighty plus percent of our traffic starts on a product details page, mm. uh, and that's because of the way in which we acquire yes. our traffic. Yes. Yeah, you've But ads. one of the most significant components of our product details page are then the merchandising carousels. That's how we mm. allow you to explore. And mm. so, we put a lot of time and effort into understanding how to populate those carousels. And a significant amount of the exploration of our assortment is done via those carousels. And obviously, you go from one of those to another product details page to another product details page and so on you may end up buying something several steps removed from the one that was your point of arrival but nevertheless you've sort of weaved your way towards the yeah. thing that you mm. actually wanted so this concept of type something into the search box look at page one of a thousand and then sort of filter yeah that still happens but it's probably less common mm. nevertheless it is something we have to work hard to improve so that when somebody does want to see what we've got in a particular subcategory, mm-hmm. the 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 ability to to refine that list to to narrow down the yeah. results is also there. And with a hundred odd, you know, more than a hundred million items on the products on the on the on the system, then then obviously that that's a <laughs> yeah. pretty pretty it must important be a, thing bit a if you a challenge,
1: you know, showing page. Uh, yes. you know, one of, of. 734,000. <laughs> and you filter it, and it says now page one of 200,000. I think it's too much like hard work. Yeah.
0: Although <laughs> this is, I guess, where, I mean, depending on where you're at, but like your personalization strategy can
2: obviously make or break the the products that you're serving, right? To a degree. I think this is another really interesting sort of intellectual debate in the industry, really, which is to what extent mm, do, do marketplaces manage customers? customers? So Amazon is obviously established itself in the minds of consumers to the point where it can operate personalization in a way that's akin to the way in which grocers have been able to do it and they do it because they are buying you're buying a particular fingerprint of assortment relatively regularly and therefore they can predict relatively accurately the sorts of things you might be interested
1: Mm. in but also you're tied into the delivery model which is you know the click the get it the reliability there's, there's an operational aspect there
2: correct correct but but elsewhere where purchase frequency is lower then personalization is a much tougher gig mm. because you simply don't have enough data items to really be able to uh, predict what that user's going to want to
1: want to but also next. if i have bought something via you um i'll know it's you because you were the merchant of record mm-hmm. but On the basis that it was a relatively random search, and I may have gone on a relatively random path, bought a product that none of us expected, and I may never repeat. You also have every Friday email saying, hey, Ian, we love you. Here are 17 things you would buy. That must be a bit challenging. So how do you see the customer? Is it your customer, your thousands of retailers' customers? How how do you see the customer uh, from within your business? This is a
2: relatively underdeveloped part of our business, so we have because oh we God, are you haven't really done, one thing. I at was last, about to
0: say you've identified finally. Oh,
2: at last, one thing you haven't said. Well, I've already we done that. <laughs> <laughs> our business has grown on the basis that we make money every time we make a transaction, so we are a customer so acquisition engine. <laughs> so <laughs> so I mean, it does put
0: you in a rather small percentage. <laughs> it does. So,
2: so we, we're, we're profitable on first order, so therefore we've been focused on doing more and more of that. Yeah. Um, the opportunity to sell to the millions of shoppers on Frugo is clearly mm-hmm. an opportunity and it's something we're developing this year. But you're right, it, just because you happen to buy one thing at that moment in time, it really doesn't give me much of a clue right um, as to what you might buy next and that's when this inspiration opportunity comes along so you might w- a bit like the way that uh, wish might work or timu or or, or a bunch of other guys mm. that they will essentially say this is just interesting stuff you know this is well-priced stuff that that is just a little bit different and you might just be interested
1: and which is quite nicely to get in your inbox actually uh, listen I, i'm just conscious of a of time so i'm going to try and bang through a couple of things uh, ChatGPT. gpt Good thing, bad thing, worried. It's good. To do all the translation and outfrugo you. Where does that fit into your thinking?
0: I think it's. I, I want to bang this. Sorry, outfrugo.
1: Yes, it's a Finnish term. It's
2: a new term,
1: <laughs> which has something to do with elk, elk leather handbags. Is that right? No, outfrugo.
2: I think AI will provide a tool for us to use, to leverage it, to make the data we're receiving from retailers even more useful. I don't think it's going to provide those retailers with an alternative to Frugo.
1: Okay, lovely. Uh, His Royal Highness the King, who has declined our offer of joining us on the podcast today, but he did give you uh, an award. Yeah, so Frugo won the, uh, or was awarded in the
2: first of the King's awards for enterprise in this year. And that was for two things, essentially. One is our track record of growth. And the second was for being an export business. So we export Mm. services effectively. And we generate transactions for retailers from customers all over the world. And so if you're a British retailer, and you're on Frugo, you would expect more than nine out of 10 of the orders that we send to you to be for other countries.
1: Interesting. Well, I should say that... uh our open invite to his royal highness uh, remains despite you having covered that um has it made a difference i mean it's it's great to get i love that but um what what difference does it make to you
2: it feels like an endorsement of Mm -hmm. many years work i mean the 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 guys who bought the business across from finland sort of 10 years ago risked literally everything to make frugo or to sustain frugo and i think it's been a real endorsement of the vision that they had and and the tenacity that they've they've had. And I think it's going to help us
1: spread the word. Great. Well, look, um, good luck with that and very pleasing. So just two things to finish off on. One is this great bit of uh, software engineering that was bequeathed to you. I'm just interested to know how well that stood up 10 years later and have you had to do more to it. And then what you're up to next. So let's talk about the thirty-five million quid's worth of stuff that gave you an advantage, but now you've had that. Uh, you know how much more, how much energy have you to put into platform development and capability, um, or were you gifted a solution fit for the ages? Some
2: and some. So it has stood the test of which is
1: t- a great finish.
2: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Licorice sweet. <laughs> the platform has proved itself to be well designed and fit for the original purpose. It has scaled brilliantly. Some of, like, I mean, just like all of us are not using the same phone or laptop we were using ten years ago. There are some bits of code that need to be replaced. The fact that we're doing. Hundreds of requests per second to some of these databases where previously it was one or two requests per second. Sometimes things need to be rewritten or re-optimized. So there's some mm-hmm. of that going on. Um, but there's a laundry list of things we want to do to make the platform easier to join and to give more tools to retailers so that they can manage their assortment more effectively so that they can win by growing more and we can win when they do.
1: Great. So let's let's finish off on that point then. So Georgia basically asked the question, which is you're in the centre of this uh, Venn, Venn diagram. diagram. Uh, so let's now go from the two-dimensional plane of Venn's diagram let's, and then to the third dimension. So as you rocket away from that plane, where are you going? What's Frugal going to do next? Where are you investing? How are you seeing the next couple of years? Given we've critiqued some of the challenges of retail, we've talked about liquidity, we've talked about cross-border the developments in digital there's a lot going on where are you going primarily scaling so
2: we want to help more retailers internationalize we think it's a brilliant way to expand any retail business we want to do it for more people and as i i think i said to you earlier we're currently doing it for a few thousand and the opportunity space is tens of millions so there's massive opportunity space for us to to grow into I think we will take on more retailers in more countries than we currently can, and we will develop uh, retailing solutions for some countries that we're not either present in or have properly developed. I think if I could manage to get a whole bunch of the stuff that is near-term important or urgent out of the way, I'd love to be selling into China. I'd love to have Western goods flowing to Chinese consumers. I think it's going mm. to be the case that the majority Even if they were
1: made in China.
2: Well, <laughs> some of them, some of them might be, but probably, probably these particular goods wouldn't be. Um, I think it's it's sort of record now that in terms of purchasing power parity, the majority of the middle class in the on the planet in 2025 will be in China, mm. and so those people will have similar wants and needs to affluent people all over the world. And I think that's the other thing that Frugo really reminds you is that people all across the world are more similar than they are different. And and so just because you're sat in one country, if you've got a particular need, if you've got a draft under your door, you need a draft excluder, then whether you're in Belgium or France or even China, then that need is common. And so the opportunity to connect that need with supply is absolutely enormous. And I think the opportunity to have Western brands sell products to Chinese consumers is really, really interesting.
1: Interesting. That's a very positive moment of Pepsi slash Coke hands joined around the world. Uh, Tony, look, you have been brilliant as ever, lucid, interesting, and a reminder of why no one should ever ask me whether a business is a good one or not, because... (laughs) I think uh, between you and His Majesty, uh, you've proven the case. Tony, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.
0: I'll think of some kind of maybe a tambourine. Klaxon.
1: That clax uh, is too, it's too obvious. A <laughs> <laughs> But you could just use your fingers. Some... <laughs> yeah. I'm going to
0: bring something.